Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on Fan of History. Well, that wasn't me or Dan, was it? We are having another special episode, and I would like to introduce Cy from History with Cy. And I'm a huge fan of History with Cy. I use um, his YouTube channel for a lot of my research before our podcast. And I was lucky enough to reach out to Cy, and he agreed to do a podcast with us on the origins of the Assyrian Empire. Since our podcast started in 1000 BC, we missed that. And Cy has a lot of really good of the old history like that on his channel. And he's just so awesome. So I invited him to do this joint podcast with me. And he's going to take most of the lead on this because he is the an expert. But we're going to have a, one of our conversations and see where it goes. I, I will warn you that when him and I get talking, we could go for a while. So this might either be a long episode or a couple. So without further ado... This is Sai, and I just you know maybe tell us a little about, bit about yourself and your channel and your podcast, and then we'll get into it. Sure. Well, thanks, Bernie. So first of all, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself an expert. <laughs> Literally, I'm I guess like you, a fan of history. I love this stuff. I guess history enthusiasts would be more. I have studied this. I've taken some courses and things like that, but I don't necessarily work in the field. Really, my channel started as a little passion project. Since I was young, I always loved ancient history, all history in general, but especially ancient history. And I guess I needed a creative outlet for it. So mm -hmm. I had all these books that I had collected from used book sales, from library discards, things like that. And I, I guess by the time I was maybe 
18 or 19 in my room at home, I had these, uh, what my parents or my, what my mom would call dust collectors everywhere. <laughs> to me, they were, they were like worth their weight in gold. I, I, and I still have a bunch of them. Most of them I still have back at my parents' house. Yeah. And, but it wasn't something that I necessarily thought that I could make a living from, to be completely honest. And I had thought, well, it might be nice to do a PhD or something like that. But I had more you know, pressing concerns in terms of like, well, will I get a job afterwards and how will I support myself? So I went into something totally different. I started off in IT and then I went into finance and I did that for several years. And I still do. But this history, this passion that I had, it was... I, sort of put it on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I still read books whenever I could. In fact, the first uh, paycheck I got, I spent it on a book at Barnes & Noble on, I, th I forget what it was. I think it was a book on Genghis Khan. <laughs> but there's, I think, which one was it? I think, I forget. I forget the exact title, but it was one of the newer books at the time. Oh, yeah, there was uh, a, you know, kind of revised history on the Mongols. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. It was, this must have been like, I don't know, like 15 years ago or something. But yeah, so I so I was always into this. And of course, when the internet came out, there was a lot more information as well. And so I loved it. And then I stumbled across YouTube. Yeah. And they were these, you know, I think I forget. I mean, there are a bunch of different channels, but some of the ones I started watching were channels like History Time, Kings and Generals. So there's another channel, History with Hilbert. I, don't I thought know they were really good. And you could see that these were people who were very passionate about history. They weren't obviously experts in, although the quality of their work is, I think is fabulous, but, but these were just people like you and me who just had a real love of history and were creating, you know, educational content for others to, to learn from. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. I was like, wow, this is, this is great. And at that time also, I, I, I had considered teaching because it's something I always loved. Even when I was in college, my one of my the best job I think I ever had was being a TA, and so I at the time was also getting a credential in uh, teaching social studies. Just I thought, well, you know what? One day I might want to do that, and and so I, I did that, and it just happened that through the university I was doing the credential from, they I, I basically I could get a one year like free trial subscription as a student to the entire Adobe suite of products. So okay. that includes Photoshop, Premiere, Adobe Audition, and like the other like 20 programs that come with it. I don't even know all the, there, there's so many of them. So long story short, I started experimenting with that. First, actually, my, my first presentation that I ever made was actually done on PowerPoint and I recorded it and it was absolutely terrible. But from that, I learned that, you know what? I actually enjoyed creating something, just the, the process of doing it. And that's when I started experimenting with Adobe, the trial subscription. I put out my first video, absolutely terrible. So I had this, all these tools at my disposal and I started experimenting with them. I made, I made a, a video first. I think it was a history of Star Wars or something oh, like that great. as a test. And then I made my first history video and that I actually put out online and it was absolutely terrible. <laughs> I think in the first three months, I had 15 views, of which 11 of them were myself. <laughs> so nothing to write home about. But then I made another video, pretty much the same result. But I realized that I loved just the process of creating 
from start to finish a video from writing the script to recording it and then finally publishing it and just for the world to right to view so so that's how that what year started. was that this might have been like around two years ago okay yeah so it was pretty new so. for you still because i mean come a long way i guess obviously <laughs> yeah i it's actually that is true it's gone by rather quick especially the last year but so i started that's how i started essentially and i think by the fourth or fifth video i started seeing that others were actually watching them because the view count went up people were leaving comments and again these these were nothing you know very, there weren't very like fancy videos they were the sound I thought was terrible. I still think it's terrible. <laughs> In fact, those of you listening to this, you can skip the videos from the last, I don't know. Well, you can, the earliest videos, you don't, don't worry about it. You just, just go to the last year. Uh, I tell you there, I mean, uh, he's, he's very humble and, and modest because the videos are really good. He, he, Sai uses a lot of maps and I feel when, you know, ours is a podcast. So when I'm doing the podcast with Deanna, I'm explaining to the listeners, I don't know, it's hard to maybe figure out where all the cities are and these areas that we're talking about, unless you have a really good map in your head or you're looking at one, I think, in my opinion. And size maps are really good, and you can see he puts the time into them. You can see, you know, where... So it helps me when I'm researching it. So And it's really cool now that YouTube's... Most people's TVs have YouTube on them, so you can just kind of watch a show, just like as if you were watching a movie. And I, I fire up History with Sai. It's History with Sai, right? Correct, correct. Sometimes I say bye, Sai, by accident. It's history with Sai. I mean, and he has thousands and thousands of subscribers and listeners. So kudos to you. Thank you. I actually love when it comes to the visuals. My favorite thing is actually to make the maps because along with being an astronaut or all the things that little kids want to be when they're young, I actually wanted to be a cartographer, believe it or not. That's right. You told me that. That's amazing. (laughs) Not a lot of people want that, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've always loved maps, geography, things like that. I remember when I was a kid, I'd design my own little treasure maps and then I'd start copying maps of the different continents and making... It was just something fun for me to do. Essentially, you're an overachiever, I think. (laughs) No, I I just have a lot of weird hobbies that, to be honest, thanks to YouTube, I kind of have an outlet for it. And again, again, that's how the channel started. And from there, I also started converting some of the episodes into podcasts. So especially the longer ones. So now you can technically say there's a History with Psy podcast. And that's pretty much my story. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I did. I Like I said, I reached out to Psy and we, I think we're friends. We became friends pretty quick anyway. We, we didn't have any <laughs> short of words. Pennsylvania. That's so true. That I forgot about so. that. Psy lives in California now, but he's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when I'm in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, so yeah. So, I mean. And we recently, what did we just learn? We recently learned that in Philadelphia, there's an amazing museum, the Penn Museum, with tons of Mesopotamian artifacts. So that might, that's going to be a road trip one of these days, too. Definitely. Yeah. It's funny because I, I've been to Philadelphia, but I never realized that museum was there. I know. Um, me neither. I'm closer. So yeah, exactly. I, when I, when I think of museums, I think of the Met or the Smithsonian, but it, it's funny though, because the book, a lot of the books I read, they reference a lot of studies that were done by the university of Pennsylvania, especially back in the 1930s. So and I, I just never made that connection. That I know. Of, I'm um, just as guilty, I have to admit. So now that the pandemic is getting, you know, sort of winding down, we start traveling. I'm definitely looking forward goal, to taking yeah. a trip down. The ne- my next trip, I'm going to do a little 
museum tour when I'm on the East Coast. Yeah, we'll have our tour. So yeah, so so today we so we you know we said let's do a podcast together, and I and Cy has a lot of the older older stuff, like I said. So I thought, well, why don't we do it on the very the beginning of the Assyrian Empire? Because in our podcast, we're coming towards the end. Unfortunately, we're in the sixth. We'll be doing the six thirty soon. So if anybody knows what happens to the Assyrians, we know they're not still here. So eventually, they had to stop. So, but when they started was a long time before the 600s BC. So it's a really interesting story. And I'm going to just sort of let, I'm going to let Sai sort of take it and I'll ask questions in between. How's that sound? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll do my best to Fine. answer any questions you might have. I mean, just based, again, on what I've, what I've read, what I've studied over the years, I, if I don't know the answer, I'll try to find it for you. Exactly, and I'll just edit it out anyway, so you guys will never know. <laughs> Kidding. There you go. Yeah, so I'll let you take it away. So, so tell us about tell us about the, the beginnings of this Assyrian Empire. Sure. So most of us actually are familiar when we think of ancient Assyria. We think of some of the scenes that are in the Old Testament of the Bible, for example, Sennacherib, his siege of Jerusalem. There are other stories or mentions of other Assyrian kings, for example, the one in the Bible they called Pul, but whose was we, we know is uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, mm-hmm. very powerful king. And the reason is, is because in those days, Syria, or what we call the Neo-Assyrian Empire, was uh, the superpower of the region. They had no, absolutely no rival. So all of these little kingdoms in the Levant, Israel, Judah, Moab the various Philistine states, Phoenician city-states, they were all sort of under the thumb of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And even when you see all of these artifacts and, you know, for example, winged bulls and these cuneiform documents, most of them come from that time, the Neo-Assyrian period. Yeah. And so I started learning more about that. And in my studies, I saw that actually, wait, this is only the final phase of Assyrian history, that the further back, the Assyrian history is one of the most continuous civilizations of the ancient world. You know, so for example, you have various Babylonian dynasties, you have the Hittites that were there. Well, Egyptians were a pretty continuous civilization as well. But Syria, that was something that I had never known. And I think most people actually, they they don't realize that Assyrian history goes back at least until 2000 BC. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm going to say 2000 BC. Right. <laughs> the Neo Assyrian structures that we look at, most of them come from maybe the 700s, 800s BC. But 1200 years earlier, Syria appears in various historical documents. We have a lot of evidence, not just at the city of Asher, but in places as far away as central Anatolia, which we're going to get to in a second. So, I I was fascinated that it, mentions of Assyria had gone back to at least 2000 BC, and I, the civilization obviously or the city that we know as Asher probably existed before that as well. Now the story of Asher is actually quite interesting. I myself have not been to the site, but I've read a decent amount about it, and it's the site that eventually became Asher was a was initially a a small the site of a small temple dedicated to a god of the same name. 
So Asher the city and Asher the god are, in a sense, related. Okay. Now, this site of Asher is it's located in what's today northern Iraq, not too far from the city of Mosul. And it's on a branch of the Tigris River that's somewhat elevated. And it's on kind of this crag that extends into the Tigris River. And it's overlooking these mountains in the back, in the distance, but it's overlooking also these, what I guess would be considered, especially in those days, very fertile farmland. Oh, yeah. So it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a peaceful place. I'm sure those back in the day when they were sitting on the little crag of Asher, they could look out, you know, towards the horizon, maybe see shepherds with their flocks, the the various mountain ranges in the distance. And of course you had a very a relatively peaceful section of the Tigris flowing beneath it. Yeah. And the land the land was also good for small farms. You didn't have to irrigate them as much as you would, for example, in southern Mesopotamia, where the terrain is much drier, it's more of a desert. Yeah. I mean, here, you, these are like rolling hills. It's more of a temperate so area up the, there in the north, I believe, right? Correct, yes. So this area, someone... So what would generally happen when you would have these you know, spots like this? In this case, it's a, it's a small mountain crag. Other times, you know, it could be like a little spring... But the locals would always think that, well, this must be the home of a god. Some god must live here because yeah. it's such a great place. It's evergreen. And so it was believed that a god named Asher lived here. And there was a small temple. Now, over time, there started to be small settlements, perhaps a village around the temple. And this god Asher became the patrons of those inhabitants that surrounded this area. Again, the as time went on, more people probably came. The location of Asher is also quite strategic, actually. It's in a section of northern Mesopotamia where several trade routes cross through. So, for example, it linked the lands to the east, uh, Elam, the area, various areas of the Zagros Mountains, with lands to the west in Anatolia, and as well as lands to the south in Babylonia or what we would call the lands of Sumer and Akkad back in the day. Right, at that time, right. Later later on. Yeah, because I guess by then we're... So so the time frame we're still in is probably around between 2200 and 2000 BC. That's... 2200 uh, to 2000 BC, these settlers started to sort of move into ahead. that city, that area. It wasn't a city, obviously. Yet. They were starting to build and put some farms around the, the mountain that was Asher. Yeah, exactly. I mean... But but by this point, I would say it would be like it's more like a small town, you could say, for those days. Okay, probably five to seventy five hundred people, and so during the time, it was there was a lot of how do you say a lot of instability. It was a time when the Akkadian Empire that had been founded by Sargon the Great mm-hmm. was pretty much breaking apart, if it hadn't already, and in between you had. A lot of these little breakaway states, if you look at the literature of the time, especially the Neo-Sumerian literature, they talk about a people from the Zagros Mountains called the Gutians, mm-hmm. who sort of came in and started causing havoc. Now, scholars debate whether they were the actual cause. Probably not. They were might have been more opportunists who came as the 
the state, the centralized state of the Akkadian Empire broke down, probably due to climate change, drought. So, but it was, it was, it's described at least in the text as a relatively chaotic time. Yeah, I just was, when I was doing some reading before, I, I realized, I read that they, a lot of scientists believe there was a drought in about 2200 BC, a pretty bad one. Correct. All over the world, really. Exactly, yeah. And and that probably caused a lot of instability, starvation. And when you have those conditions, you have a lot of unrest that yeah. it generally leads to revolt. Yeah, and people so start moving around. They have to leave one place. They got to go to another place. Exactly. So there was a lot of instability. And and again, the, the texts, they, I guess the Gutians become the scapegoat. Yeah, but sort of like the sea peoples. Yeah, and exactly. In that sense, they're they're just sort of blamed that oh, it's the Gutians who did this, but right. they were rather, in my opinion, at least, I think they just took advantage of the situation to because in in those days, I guess sometimes even now, people from the countryside they're generally looked down upon by city dwellers. Right. So they had always been seen as these sort of uncouth, uncivilized people. In fact, Sumerian documents of the time, they say they are people who resemble men, but with canine intelligence. Wait, they resemble and men with canine intelligence? Correct. Oh, so, boy. So that's, how's that for racist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... They're just... The, the Sumerians, they're, especially in, during the Neo-Sumerian time, they were uh, a very proud people. Yeah. They felt that they're... They... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I guess there was no other civilization like them. Yeah. And uh, and there never had been. And, And some... Actually, to some degree, that is a bit true, perhaps with the exception of Egypt. Right. I don't think that there was another 
civilization as advanced as they were at that time period. Yeah, or maybe in India too. But that was around this time is when the Indian, I think, civilization started to collapse. I mean, the the what is it? The yeah, the Indus Valley. I think it's around twenty two hundred where they started dealing with problems with the. They say the rivers changed course too around then in India. I wonder if the I wonder if the Tigris or you know have maybe changed course that it was in a perfect spot in Asher around that time. That's possible too. Yeah, I mean the rivers, both the Euphrates and the Tigris, definitely changed over the course of, I mean, hundreds of years right. for sure. Sometimes even decades. In fact, what's really interesting is that, and and this is why irrigation became so important more in southern Mesopotamia than in the north. I think it was more stable in the north, mm-hmm. but in southern Mesopotamia, especially, you would have you you were never guaranteed that the course of the Tigris or the Euphrates or any of their small branches would run the same course as it had the prior season. Oh, that's so, interesting. So that's why they, you know, they they really relied on irrigation because with irrigation at least even if if the the course of the Tigris changed, they could at least extend the their irrigation networks. Right. They could they fine you if worse comes to worse you dig some more canals and right. things of that sort. It wasn't like the Nile for example that would consistently flood around the same time every year right. and leave this rich deposit of silt. The, the the rivers of Mesopotamia, they weren't they were a bit more capricious. They just kinda had a mind of their own. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's why the kings so, were so it was in charge of of the canals and things were such an important, you know, part of being a king. Oh yeah, canals were canals were huge actually. Sure. Um, I built canals. I did these, I did that. You know, even in China it was a huge thing. I mean, of course it does bring life. I mean you have to have water for food and et cetera. Exactly. So yeah, so they so up north there they started to settle in. We now I say they we've talked about this before but personally, like we don't get in like to get into this racial thing, what what these people, but the people that we think kind of moved in where they were Arcadians, I think, maybe. Correct. Okay. Yes. So it, actually, it's very interesting because they are mostly Akkadian as far as we know. The way we know this is through the names of various kings, the okay. names that are found in documents. They are pretty much, I would say, I think about 80% Akkadian names. Okay. But if you go back to certain periods, in fact, so they have – it. it's kind of interesting. The Assyrian king list, it, you have – it's broken into different sections. Mm-hmm. So the what we'd call the historical kings are those that we can or have been somewhat proved, their existence has been somewhat proved right. through archaeology. But before that, you have what are called kings that, that, what they call kings that were ancestors and kings that lived in tents. Oh, yeah. Kings that lived in tents and ants. Yes, I read that. So these were probably... Their ancestors, when they were still perhaps still nomads, before they had settled in Asher, they said they, I guess they had this oral memory of who their tribal chieftains were, and they called them kings. Right. But essentially, I, I think if we were to look at them now, right, they were probably a little more than tribal chieftains, various tribes and things of I that sort. I feel like the Assyrians call small kings everybody a king. I think they get a bad rap of, like, some of the kings themselves get a bad rap of saying that they're sort of like egomaniacs because they call themselves king of the kings or king of the world. But I think king of the world and that just means you're a bigger king. You know, you're a real king. You're a king of many places. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting how just the concept of kingship also sort of evolves. 
Because as we'll see in early Asher, the king technically was the god Asher. So even even the term Syria, it's a Greek term, but it's their way of saying Mat Ashur. Okay. Which basically means land of Asher, as in the god Asher. Oh, so, uh, so right. Assir- so the king, but they, and did you say in the beginning the king was the god as well? Well, the the king is always the god. That's the thing. The the man, he just the ruler of the Assyrians. I mean, he goes by. King. Oh, I see what you're saying. The ki- Asher is the king, and then the king of the the human king is the representative of Asher on earth. Exactly the the vice regent of Asher. Gotcha, but he wasn't a, ki- a god like the Egyptian pharaoh was supposed to be the god god. But he was, I follow you. Yeah, so in in, in this sense, he was the god's representative on earth, and I, I, we use the word king. And later correspondence, when for example, when the Assyrian king would write letters, so this was several hundred years later, mm-hmm. but when he would write letters, for example, to the Egyptian pharaoh or to the Babylonian king, or the king of the Hittites, then he would also address himself as a king, because that's right. just the term they would use. But in theory, he was for the Assyrian people, he was not the king. He was the representative re- representative of the king. Gotcha. But the king was always the god Asher. And so is that why the kings always crag. look the same then? And their carvings? Is that <laughs> I mean, part of the reason, maybe? I, they had this, yeah, same hairstyle, same... Yeah, it's the same guy, <laughs> basically. Hair. I mean, Asher Banapal put that little uh, quill, or I keep calling it a quill, but the writing, you know, mm-hmm. stick. <laughs> he that he shows that it's the, him, but basically their faces all look the same for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, I... I I mean, so they are very. The Syrians are. I mean, we know like from their later history, and I bet it maybe somewhat started in this ancient history. They're very conservative, and they they seem to be concerned about the forces of chaos around them. So they want their king, or their human real king on earth, to protect them from the forces of chaos. And that's where Asher's god is. And one of the ways, of course, they end up protecting from the force of chaos is unleashing it, <laughs> unleashing it on anybody outside of their area. You know? Yeah, that definitely later on for sure. But what's fascinating is that 1,500 years before all of that, they were literally this small, I mean, we would call in our day like a village yeah. or a small town perhaps. In those days, it was a city. But probably at its height, and when I say at its height, I'm talking about maybe you know 2000 BC, it probably had between five to maybe maximum 10,000 people. Okay. Not a very but big city. But that also, that's debated because as we're going to see, what happened is that a lot of those people lived abroad. So a lot of residents of Asher lived abroad. Oh, oh, tell me about that. Yeah. Earlier, we were talking about how Asher was at a very strategic location that several trade routes kind of, you know, passed alongside it, passed near it. It was at a nice spot in northern Mesopotamia where the Tigris River flowed. You had various mountain passes or hill passes Mm -hmm. where traders could bring caravans from different areas. So the people of Asher, I mean, it was a really insignificant town except for its location. Mm -hmm. And so over time, I mean, I guess this is the ingenuity of the people, the early Assyrian people, is that they started to realize that, you know what, we can actually really profit from this, Mm -hmm. not just as a little way station for good, but perhaps being by being proactive and going out and kind of and making connections with other cities, 
developing deeper ties with them. And eventually they started building, sorry, not, well, I guess you could say build or they start. they had, they started having colonies within these different cities. Oh, I see. Yes. Like a Greek court. Like you have the, all through history, you have like the Greek quarter, the American quarter or the British quarter. Exactly. They have the Assyrian quarter so an in another Assyrian city. Quarter in a lot of these cities, especially in Anatolia. Yeah. Because what they would do is they would be there, they would trade, they would bring textiles from Babylonia. So what would happen is Babylonia was known for its textiles. Those would be shipped to Asher. And then the people from Asher, the Assyrians, Assyrian traders rather, they would act as sort of a middleman. So okay. they would take those textiles to the cities of Anatolia, one of the most famous being a city called Kanesh, also known as Nisha, Nesha in Hittite, but okay. in Assyrian documents, it comes up as Kanesh. And they had these probably several thousand Assyrians living there in, as you said, an Assyrian quarter that was essentially take these textiles and trade them for precious metals. For example, tin, which was hey. making bronze. So, and you know, this part of Mesopotamia, especially in Southern Mesopotamia, Tin is not something that's native to the area, so it had to be imported, as did copper and all of all these other metals. Right, and just in case anybody doesn't so, know, remember, tin, you need tin to make bronze. This is the Bronze Age. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, so they'd get all these tin and other metals as well from Anatolia, and they'd bring them back, and then they'd sell them to other parties, maybe some parties in Elam, but mostly to the people of Babylonia. Right, that was their best customers probably down there for a lot of it. So you could see when you really, when you think about where Assyria is at the time too, I mean, yeah, it's definitely a crossroads because you have Urartu in the mountainous area above there. They must have had some interesting things to buy from them. Probably didn't sell much Mm -hmm. to them. Or who knows? At those times, those were the the Hurrian people, actually. Those were the Hurrians in the mountains? Sorry? The Hurrians were up there in the mountains where like Urartu eventually would become? Uh, Some of them, yeah. They were actually spread out, but they were north of Assyria, actually. Okay. And going back to what you were saying before, this is actually, I forgot to bring this up. So when I said that about perhaps 80% of the people were of Akkadian origin, Mm -hmm. the rest actually, if you look at these king lists, there are actually certain names of kings, what they call some of these, these earlier kings, that have what appear to be like old Hurrian names. Okay. So... That rather than just being a very homogeneous population, Asher probably also had other different types of or other groups of people there. Yeah. And one of them being perhaps maybe a significant Hurrian minority. Huh. Yeah, I get the point that I get the feel the vibe that Assyria was never a like a race to be, it was a culture. If you're like an American kinda, where you're supposed to be an American no matter what. What yeah, yeah color, I, color I, what especially are. later on as the empire grew. It became more, if you could, I guess, I've read that they identified themselves as Akkadians. Okay. And that was their language. So, for example, what we call the Assyrian language was pretty much the same as the Babylonian language, but they were different dialects Mm -hmm. of Akkadian. So, back in the day when archaeologists were first uncovering this stuff, they called basically all cuneiform Babylonian. Okay. Because they thought that Nineveh was actually part of Babylon and all of the other surrounding areas, even the city of Ur, for example, before they learned how to really distinguish, before they determined that these were all separate languages or separate dialects, everything was called Babylonian. Gotcha. The language is actually called Akkadian, and you have a Babylonian dialect, and then you have the Assyrian dialect. And they've, of course, evolved over time. 
But and they're um, both Semitic. That's all Semitic, a Semitic correct. language, right? Akkadian, all, Semitic all those are Semitic. But Sumerian is not a Semitic language. Or is that correct? No, Sumerian is a language isolate. So that's actually a very mysterious language. They don't know exactly where it came from right. because it's unlike any other known language. Right, so, one of those deals. So, for example, Akkadian, it's, I guess, what we call an Eastern Semitic language, which is very similar to Western Semitic languages, even modern languages like Hebrew mm-hmm. or uh, Arabic, for example. Right, yeah, the so Hebrew grammar, and Arabic are also correct. Similar-sounding words. But, Sumerian, uh, not so much. And that's why Ashurbanipal says how hard it was to learn to read and write Sumerian when he talks in his, mm-hmm, his yeah. annals. <laughs> There's a very famous quote here where he's like bragging to the world. Right, how good um, he could read all these other languages. So, so, And then he can, he can solve math problems that have no solution apparently. And it's just really funny. That quote actually, I should read it actually. Which is the quote? It. The quote by Ashurbanipal. It's really like... It's the most, I, I've never seen a king or anyone really brag so much about their intelligence, with the exception of a former president who shall not be named. <laughs> but the whole time, honestly. <laughs> I, U.S. president. Yeah, he reminds me of them. Reminds me of Syrian but, kings. Uh, there's a, oh, actually, Syrian. I can probably, I can probably bring it up later on if you want, because I have it, I have it, I used it actually in a, in another episode. But basically, he's saying that, oh, you know, I, I was able to read Sumerians that even the best scribes couldn't read, and I could I conversed with all the best scholars, and I found the solution to math problems that uh, don't even exist, which sounds kind of weird. Yeah, that one was weird. I know I know I know we covered some of it in one of our podcasts. So I know I didn't say that one. I remember reading that though when I was reading it. That is odd. Like Sennacherib, <laughs> he told you that he could. He he literally actually did learn how to do some kind of different bronze casting, but Asher Banapal, man, he just brags about everything. Yeah, he was more he was less of a warrior and more of a scholar, yeah. I think. I think he was maybe if I think if he had his way, he would have uh rather just, you know, lived a life of luxury in a library somewhere versus exactly. on the battlefield. But but yeah, but but going back to the early Assyrians so they had set up these trading colonies all over various regions, but the most famous ones were in Anatolia. And they do this exchange where they would mostly exchange textiles for tin and bring that back to Asher. And then it would be distribu- they'd be distributed to other areas. Asher was sort of a, a trade hub, a regional trade hub. Gotcha. And I, I just wanted to so, ask one other question. Hurry, is Hurry sure. in a Semitic language or is that a different language? Do you know? No, that's a different language. Okay. That's, it's a different language group. So Gotcha. All right. So, yeah, so basically we have these Anatolians and 80% Semitic peoples that, and Akkadians they, that founded Asher, you know, the city, a trading post of Asher, way back 2200, 2000 BC. Yeah, actually, probably the, the shrine town was established before that. Oh, wow, okay. But Asher really starts to appear... In the historical record, around 2000 BC. Okay. So, and there, there supposedly mentions of it from they may perhaps a little bit earlier in Akkadian documents. Okay. They're not a hundred percent sure, but I think they found some seals that are of the former governor, the former Akkadian governor of that region. So those would be probably around like 2200 BC for example okay. that there was an Akkadian presence there. Cuz it did become part of a, part of one of the, the empire and I hope I didn't just jump the gun on that if, on you know if I did. No, 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 that's fine. Yeah, I know it was it was a part of these empires, but it was a very insignificant 
town. It, okay. was in, it was like one of these small towns. Gotcha. That's, I mean, that's at least what's... It wasn't even like a city, like a city-state. It was just a little vast, a little town that was become part of other empires, either as a vassal or as a actual Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I mean, the, I guess you could say all the big urban centers were further south. Right. That's, those are where you had, I guess, the real cities, for example, Uruk, Ur, Lagash, that's, I guess, that's where all the action was. That was where all the action was down in the south. And this was like a little backwater up in the north. And this is this kind of how they, and then it sort of ended up being that way for hundreds of years where the, I don't think the Babylonians like being ruled by the Assyrians. Yeah. Has yeah, these that northern was, uh, bear bears. Let's go that big rivalry, which I'm, I'm sure you guys talked about in your in your podcast because that's yeah we're right in the heart like of after it. one thousand yep we're right that's, in the that's heart a, that's actually one of my favorite times just yeah there's a lot of information too helps I mean it's not <laughs> yeah, like, it's like you every know. every uh, five years there's a new rebel king in Babylonia and they have to kind of come down and sort of deal with them and right and in some cases that same rebel comes back it's it's really Marduk Aplaidina that's the yeah he's good at pronouncing one, but... you guys check out Sai's channel he's I listened to it so I could pronounce it properly before. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm pronouncing them properly. <laughs> but so, yeah, so, so Asher, then around 2000, it's this town. And for the next 200 years, it's really interesting. We have a wealth of knowledge. When I say we, I'm talking about archaeologists. They've uncovered a wealth of knowledge, both in the city of Asher itself, as well as in these Anatolian colonies that sort of outline how business was done. You had these, everything from these like joint stock companies to individual merchants and they have uncovered, I think, something like 10,000, at least 10,000 documents, if not more, many of them being not just mundane commercial accounts, but letters between families. So, for example, between fathers and their sons, husbands and their wives, just about all. Where did they find these? In houses, basically? Like in, in digs in the house? Or they weren't in the library or something, right? Yeah, exactly. They were probably, they were in... This Syrian, many of them come from Kanish in this Syrian quarter. Okay. And then the ones from Asher, the further down, deeper that they would dig, they would find them in the remains of what they believe were houses or okay. maybe storehouses. So it's a real look at like real that. life because they're just leather letters. They're not a king list or something. I know. Should I, I should read. I know you have a couple of these here. I should maybe read one or two of them, right? Sure, sure. Like this is just a letter. So this doesn't have any big political point to us. It's a letter from one person to another, right? So here's one. He says, here's a letter where it seems that the grandkids have renounced or cast off their grandfather, right? <laughs> I have raised yeah. your son, but he said to me, you are not my father. He then got up and left. Also, your daughters I have raised, but they too said, you are not our father. Three days later, they got up and left in order to go to you. So let me know what you think. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Actually, that that's a that's a really good one. I, I know exactly which letter you're talking about. That that's that's a letter. The so what had happened? The the scenario here is that the the father had gone off to one of the colonies. I believe it was Kanish, and he was kind of he was kind of out of the picture and mm-hmm. had sort of dumped his kids on the grandfather. But as the kids got older, they you know they started to assert their own independence and. It seems like they were basically, I don't know, just trying to maybe leave the house. Or I think the the grandfather was perhaps putting too many rules on them. Yeah. And they were like, you know what? Forget you. You're not even, 
You're not even my Kids dad. Kids these days, right? I don't need to listen to you. <laughs> oh, these days, those days. I mean, I guess that doesn't change. It never does. <laughs> so it's so funny, so, yeah, right? So it that, seriously so, is that the grandfather's right, and your kids are just—they're little—they're not like kids these days. <laughs> so it's just other ones. So, so yeah, that, that's an example of one sort of you could say family letter. And then I you think know, there's another letter. one you have because remember you told me about it. I haven't read it. I'm going to read it out loud. But it was a letter from her, oh, from a wife to her husband complaining about not having enough money. Mm-hmm. So where did they find that's this another, one before? Well, I read what else it? hasn't changed? That's in, I'm sorry. I, that hasn't changed either. We have a lot yeah. of these things also. <laughs> so she. So I mean, this guy maybe was in her in in Anatolia, and then they found this letter that she wrote. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you wrote and said, guard the bracelets and rings you have so they may be available to pay for your food. In truth, you sent me a half a pound of gold with Ilbani. But what are those bracelets that you left me? When you went away, you did not leave a single shekel of silver. You picked the house clean and took it away. Since you left, there has been hardship and hunger in the city. I keep buying barley for our food. I guess that means she's not able to grow her own or whatever. Maybe barley wasn't such a good thing. Well, to barley have to... was like cheap. Yeah, or crappy. What is this extravagance that you keep writing about me about? There is nothing for us to eat. Do we live in luxury? I have picked clean everything in my possession and sent it to you. Today, I live in an empty house. A year has gone by. Do send me money corresponding to the value of my textiles out of your available funds so I could buy ten measures of barley. With respect to the tablet, with witnesses concerning Asher Imiti, son of Kura, which he got a hold of, he caused trouble for the household and took slave girls as pledges, but your agent cleared it up, and I had to pay two-thirds of a pound of silver. Until you come here, he will not make any claim. When you come, you will still have to negotiate. Why do you keep listening to slander and sending me heated letters? <laughs> so he must have been sending her letters saying that she wasn't taking care of the house. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, you have a lot of letters like this, you know, this sort of back and forth between the husband and the wife. Now, sometimes the husband, you'll have, some of them are kind of, they're, they're really interesting. There'll be the, the wife writing to the husband saying, oh, so... I understand why you haven't been sending money because I heard, and maybe this is a, you know, sort of a reference to like the slander or whatever, Mm -hmm. but he's like, oh, I heard that you have, you know, you have taken another wife and have a whole, you know, other family there in this Anatolian town. And that's why you're not sending me the money and things like that. And there would... It, Those are great little in, little views into the real life. I, I do have a question. I have a wonder, though, about the writing. Do you think that this woman, you know, the wife wrote it? She, I don't think, did she have a scribe? So I imagine these people must have been somewhat more of a higher, you know, higher echelon of society, I guess to say, if they knew how to read and write. Yeah, most likely she had a scribe or a, I guess what we'd call a professional letter writer okay. compose this for her. Like she would dictate it and then he would... Write it because in, in those days most scribes were male, right? Okay, and depending also on the family, so upper class families they could actually afford a tutor for their uh, children to learn basics of. They weren't scribes necessarily, but they could you know learn to read and write some of the basic signs, right. the most in, most important signs yeah. for correspondence like this. Yeah, because there's hundreds so, of them, so I imagine there's you know a lot of different levels. Even like today, we could have a certain level of reading, but. You would correct. You need a lot more education to get a level that we have today. Even like a first grader, you'd probably take years of learning cuneiform and stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I the scribes themselves, the the when you look at all the signs they had to memorize, yeah. just how I, I mean, I think they're quite complicated. It's that's you know what I feel like I've yeah. I'm coming to learn. Maybe this will help people, you know, because I've been studying this my forever and I can really understand it. So I think like cuneiform and hieroglyphics, they're sort of like writing with emojis, but then the or sort of like trying to figure out a code, <laughs> you know, like it's almost like the, if the word. Because they, they would just sound like the word, right? So, like, I can't think of an example, but maybe, like, oh, headphones, for example. Yeah, so so headphones would be a picture of a head and a picture of a phone. And you'd have to know that means headphones, you know? And I think, and that's kind of how it started, right? I mean, then these symbols, but a cuneiform of a head doesn't look like a head anymore, but that's kind of how it started. So that's how you had to sort of, like, interpret these and of course and there's no spaces between the words either which has got to be maddening yeah especially you're correct especially in sumerian because most i think i read about 90 to 95 percent of sumerian words are just one syllable and so right. it was easy to have say one symbol for each word right and then as you said you could combine different signs for to, to, for different meanings. Right. So, for example, let's say you had the sign for a head, which would mean a person or a human, and you had another sign, which independently, let's say a bowl. So that's, you know, by itself, the bowl would mean, you know, food or there's another meaning of that. Right. But anyway, but if you combine them, so if you have the head next to the bowl... That means to eat. Right. So, no, so that's even like harder because that. so that's it, not a syllable at all. That's a picture from a picture, right? Yeah. So you'd have to like com- combine them. Right. I guess you'd have to know the connotation of the right. of the text you're reading to see that, oh, okay, this must mean this and not something else. <laughs> it was definitely complicated and not good for emails or texting. No. <laughs> imagine having the text but, in cuneiform. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, that's kind of interesting because when they text in Chinese and Mandarin, yeah. They also have to like go through various all the different That's signs. That's right. Characters. Probably the same kind of a thing. So it probably would have been something like that. I wouldn't ancient text. So yeah, that is a funny. That, I love those letters. Those are great. And so this basically this period, like we say, you said I should say, that Asher was not quite the city that a city even at all. It didn't have a king and it's sort of a trading post, but there was Assyrians all over, and sort of traders. Mm-hmm. There, it's funny. Like the Canaanites were. Tra- the Phoenicians, they were like traders like that, too. Mm-hmm. It seems like a... They, they were... I guess, yeah, they were also trading at that time, too. Yeah, probably. But I think they were... They they became really much more famous later of on. Of course, though. of course. Like, I think as they started developing their their navy and their merchant fleet, that's when they became really, really... I, I have another um, question that just reminded me of. So, the, mm-hmm. being that they're trade routes, so we always say that the Assyrians weren't big... On their navy and sailors, so did they sail the boats up and down the? Did they sail boats up and down the rivers to trade for goods? That's actually a good question. I I have not read something specifically on that, though I imagine they would have, right. or at least people would have perhaps shipped. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that the the river at the time was able to be uh, navigated, right? So I think that probably would. Be the case, but 
I myself have not specifically read that, so I don't want to say something yeah. incorrect. Well, we're going to get back to you guys about that. We'll look that one up. Because <laughs> the, the river must have but, flown south, right? So, I mean, it flowed south towards the Persian Gulf. So, you know, you, I think in Egypt, I remember learning that in Egypt, the wind blew one way, but the river goes the other way, right? So it was a great river to nav- navigate, except for the, the rapids where you can't go. Yeah, especially once you were away from the various cataracts, right. which I guess, I think they end in... Southern, what's they, they they end this? Well, I shouldn't say end. They probably start there, depending on where you're coming yeah. from. But the cataracts start in Nubia. Yeah. In but I'm thinking just, I think around the Aswan area, and then. But we know that the Egyptians and, f- f- sailed up and down the river, but I don't know about the Mesopotamians. But we'll definitely look that up. But you know, the river is still a good route. I mean, they could use barges and and sure that. I do know in later time. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying it was flat. A river was usually pretty flat. You're not, a river's not usually like right in a mountain. Some the beginnings Correct, of the Correct, yeah. But, you know. And I don't think you had many rapids or anything like that no. in Mesopotamia. But I, I, they did sail them at one time, but later, because there are, there are texts where Sennacherib is talking about, this was one of his, his I guess, disastrous campaign mm, yes. against Elam. Yes. And he does talk about transporting troops. He did. In Phoenician boats, yes. basically. That's or the Phoenician thing. Boats. Yeah, they, they were manned Phoenicians. by Phoenicians. Yeah, they, I think because they were they were part of the empire by then, so I'm sure they. I, th- I think the the Assyrians were also good, like other peoples. They were also good at adopting the best practices of the people they conquered. Mm-hmm. So, no one could really beat the Phoenicians when it came to shipbuilding. No. So they, I'm sure they brought a bunch of Phoenician shipbuilders. I guess at that time to Nineveh. And they had them build boats specifically for this invasion. And then they sailed them down the Tigris. Mm-hmm. And eventually they... They landed the, the troops, troops in Elam for that. Yeah, I think it was actually... It was a two-pronged attack. Actually, the, what he did at the time was he sailed them to the mouth of the Gar. So he had two forces. He had one that left from Babylon, or I guess just east of Babylonia. Sorry, east of Babylon. Yeah. So that part of Babylonia into Elam. But another bulk of the force actually... It said they they crossed the Gulf, and they landed in I guess that would what in those days was southern Elam, what would, today would be like the province of Fars, like on the Gulf, and uh, both of these armies were supposed to go and take Susa, they failed, but uh, that was at least uh, one instance. Yeah, I mean that's the first issue. I that's the first used. reference I know of them. You you know using ships on the on the rivers, and so that's a lot later. So we'll have to look. We'll have to look that up and wonder. I imagine they use it for trade, but we don't. They obviously didn't have naval yeah. battles on the river, but for trade. Well, we we actually we also have definitely for trade in the sense that I can't recall any specific Assyrian document, but I know that there are documents from the third dynasty of War, the Neo Sumerian Empire, mm-hmm. because there's a city. Actually, it's not even a city. It's a small town a few kilometers outside of what was then the holy city of Nippur. It's a site called uh, Pizrush Dagan. Okay. And long story short, it was a it was basically a a large warehouse. It was a town that was like a large warehouse. Okay. And from there there are all these documents that have been uncovered, all these commercial documents. And some of them mentioned, for example, wheat and cattle being loaded on both loaded and unloaded on boats sent to different locations throughout the empire. Basically, every month or so, they would collect taxes from different parts of the empire. So all these boats, they would come to Nippur, 
where they were essentially then divided up and first sent to the temples, then to the various, to the royal family, and then any nobles, and then distributed to the, I guess, the common people in the empire. But a lot of these these items are at least recorded to have come on ships. That, that's very super interesting, actually. So, but so I'm sure the Assyrians did it too. Yeah. It's just that maybe the kings were still spending more time bragging about their accomplishments and how great they were and how they could read Sumerian versus the everyday stuff of, or everyday little mundane things like shipping wheat between one right. city and the other. Yeah, I mean, we needed all these so, yeah. it's business. It's traders and business people to keep the world fed, right? That is true. They're the <laughs> unsung heroes of any empire. Right. I mean, they're doing it to make money for everybody, but you need somebody needs everybody needs to eat. So anyway, sorry, I stopped that your train of thought there. No, so, yeah. no, this is I, I I just love having discussions like this. So this is fine. Any it's you feel free to interrupt anytime. I mean, I don't look at this as uh, I look at this more as like a conversation. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Just two friends talking about. About some interesting stuff. And this is to the listeners, so. I will tell you, this is how I could cheat. And I don't have to do tons of research. I'll get an expert like Sion <laughs> to help me with that. I know enough yeah. to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah, if I gave you like five books, you'd probably know more than I would. Well, it's possible that I have to read them just then. from reading. <laughs> I, just, I just love reading. And I guess, yeah, it's just something that. And then I forget. You guys have good memories. I have to write it all down. So I so yeah so so Syria now was a trading area, and it's kind of part of the empires. But then we sort of get some kings, right? And then I'll let you go on from there. Yeah, I will indeed let Sai go on when we return with part two of this topic: the beginnings, the origins of the Assyrian Empire. Do not miss it because we have some really exciting stuff in the next episode too. See you next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.